Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We are in a series uh, uh, that we're working on called As He Is, So Are We in the World. And we didn't just come up with that out of thin air. We actually took that straight out of this thing called the Bible. <laughs> Pretty good idea to do. First uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 16, talks to us about uh, how we can actually have confidence when everything fades to black and there is, there, there is this thing of judgment, standing before God face to face. If you're anything like me, which I know many of you are because we've had co- uh, conversations, uh, most of us have, have, have developed these thoughts, whether we were taught them or we just kind of, you know, naturally had them, that uh, Judgment Day is going to be a very, very sad day, a very, very difficult day, even for us as believers. I remember being, I don't know if I was taught this or if I just picked up on this, I don't know, but this idea that there was going to be this big jumbo screen in heaven that was going to show all of my failures, all of my sins, all of my shortcomings, and there would be a judgment. I'd still get into heaven, but, you know, my enjoyment of heaven was going to be based on how, you know, good my good was and how bad my bad was in some sort of way. And, you know, um, we, this is a rampant thought, you know, in, in, unfortunately, in Christianity. And so we're taking the time to just kind of take a time out and say, what will that really be like? What will it really be like when you and I stand before the Father face to face? I mean, we are in him now. We know that he's in us. But I'm talking like experientially, like where we don't have to filter things through these human brains. What, what is that going to be like? You know, there was an old song by Mercy Me, you know, uh, called um, I Can Only Imagine. You know, it's a song where he's talking about like, you know, I don't know, am I going to like bow? Am I going to cry? Am I going to this? Like, what is that going to be like? Well, we know what it's going to be like if we just simply read 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And this is what it says. Now, before we read this, this is kind of our launching pad for this series. Before we read this, I made two promises to you uh, three weeks ago when we started this. And if you didn't, uh, haven't been a part of the podcast or haven't been with us on Sundays, I really encourage you to, to, to listen to the podcast. It's super simple to listen to. Um, if you work in Charlottesville, you can listen basically to half of it on your way into town. And on, on your way home from work, you can listen to the other half, the other half of, of the podcast. I mean, it's super simple. Um, and, and it's accessible to you. If you have your podcast app on your phone, you can just search for Life Journey Church or Walt Davis, and it'll show up uh, there for you to, uh, to listen to. But I made two promises to you. The first promise was that um, much of what we are going to discover, especially if you haven't been a part of our Life Journey family for a while, much of what we're gonna, you're going to discover in this series is going to be new to you. That, that, that was a promise. It's going to be news. It's going to be new because you might not have heard some of these things before, particularly what we're going to talk about today. But the second promise was that nothing that we're going to talk about is new, okay? All of what we're going to discover has been written in our Bibles, in our Scripture, in the Scripture for 2,000 years, 
And so promise number one is some of what we discover is going to be new to us because we didn't, you know, cut our teeth on this. But this promise number two is none of it is new. We mean I, we didn't wire this stuff into your Bibles. We didn't, you know, get a, a printer and print a bunch of stuff and just fold it into, you know, your binding of your, of your Bible and just make up new stuff. It's not new, but it might be new to you, to me. And so we have the opportunity to judge by the Spirit within us of whether or not these things are true because the Spirit lives in us to guide us into truth. So here's our launching pad, this passage out of 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. And it simply says this, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. And this word love, we talked about, you know, the last couple of weeks, it's this word agape, which is really only found in the scriptures because this is a one-sided, uh, uh, one-sided no strings attached, unconditional love. This is not love that we can understand on this side of, of heaven. It's not love from below. Uh, it's love from above, if you will. And so uh, John is saying we've come to embrace this. We've come to receive this. We've come to believe this. And John being a Jew, this is a big deal, remember, because his understanding of God's love, you know, particularly from the Mosaic Covenant was, if you obey, then I will continue. If you don't obey, then I won't continue. And so his understanding of God's love uh, originally, initially through the Mosaic Covenant was not seen as this agape, no strings attached, major strings attached in the Mosaic law. You do not, you shall be cursed. That's a pretty big string, John. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that'll hold me up. You know, that's a big string. And so what, I, what, what he's been familiar with most of his life is, yeah, we know God loves us, but there's been strings attached to this. And so what he's saying here, we've come to know something new. We've come to know not conditional love, but agape love, something different. And he says, God is this agape. God is this unconditional, one-sided, no-strings-attached love. And the one who abides or the one who rests or dwells, meditates on this one-sided agape love, you actually are meditating on God himself. So if we really want to get to know God, then we get to know this one-sided, unconditional, no-strings-attached love. So by abiding in or resting in this love, this agape, you actually abide in. You rest in God himself. You get to know him. And God's spirit rests in you, a perfect rest, a peace that surpasses understanding. And here's verse 17. Here's where it really gets awesome. By this, in other words, by getting to know this one-sided, unconditional, no-strings-attached love, by getting to know agape, agape itself, love, is perfected with us. In other words, it has a job to take us somewhere. This love, this one-sided, unconditional, no-strings-attached love has a job. It's taking us to a place. It is, it is being perfected. It's got a goal. It's taking us to a destination. What is that destination? Right underneath it, it says, so that. Here's the destination. Here's where God's love is taking us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So this one-sided, unconditional love is taking us to a place so that when everything fades to black and we see fully, completely, without this, as Paul talks about it, this uh, a window, what does he call it, a window dimly lit, you know, there's no, there's no dimness, it's perfectly clear for what it really is. John is saying that this love exists so that we can really believe who we really are, so that we can have confidence, no fear. He goes on later to talk about 
This love, agape, it, it dispels fear. It casts away fear so that we can have confidence when we stand before him face to face. Now, how is that possible? And he says it here, and this is our launching pad, because as he is, as God himself is, so also are we in the world. See, if you're like me, this is something that's new. In the last, uh, I'd say, six years of my life, this is new to me. But this isn't new, right? I mean, how long, John wrote this in, you know, the first century. I mean, this has been around for a while, but it's new to me. That's what I promised. You might hear something that's new, but it's not new, all right? And so John is saying that when everything fades to black, we will stand before God face to face, and we will be no, no fear, but perfect confidence, boldness, because as he is, so are we now in this world. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at in what ways are we like him now already in this world. Last week we talked about how already we are loved just as much as Jesus is loved. We went to John 17 and we saw Jesus say, say that his desire was for the world to know that the Father loves the Son to the same degree that the Father loves us. So there is no shadow, there is no distance, there is no separation in measurement between the love that God has for his own son and the love that God has for you and for me. That was last week. So as he is loved, so am I now in this world. And today, we're gonna go to Romans chapter five like Craig was talking about. And we're gonna ask and hopefully answer a pretty important question of, okay, all right, fine. As he is, so are we now in this world. Get it. But what about all this sinning, right? If you're from the South like me, it's sinning, right? Sinning. You don't even put the G on the end. It's just all this sinning. What about all this sinning? What, what, what about all this sin? There is there's a desire for sin that we each have. There's within us. So if I am as he is, then what about all this desire for sin that we know all too well? How can you say, John, that as he is, so are we now in this world, when I know from experience, because I am, you know, a human being walking around planet Earth, that I have within me desires for sin? How can you say, as he is, so are we now in this world, if I know that there are desires within me for sinning? Is there desires within Jesus for sinning? We would all shake our heads no. So how am I like him? How am I as he is? How can I stand before him confidently when I know that there are desires within me for sin? How is that possible? That's what we're going to try to take, tackle this morning in the few minutes we have remaining. Some of this is going to be new, okay? I'm warning, <laughs> warning. It's going to be new, but I promise none of it is going to be new, okay? You trust me? You don't have to. I mean, you, that's why you have a copy of this thing. So let's go to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. This is the apostle Paul. He says, the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. The law, you know the law, that's the Ten Commandments, that's 613 other, 603 other commandments. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The law, 
came in so that the transgression would what? All together. Would. Now, is that a typo? I mean, don't take my word for it. You got your Bible, right? You can follow along on the Bible app, you know, to, to see the notes in the Bible app if you want to do that. But the law came in so that transgression would increase. Anybody remember the old RCA dog, you know, that's standing there looking at the uh, phonograph, or the, what, not the phonograph, uh, the record player, you know, and he's got his head tilted like, what is that noise coming out of that thing? Anybody seen that ad, you know, from back in the day? Isn't that kind of how we feel when we hear this? The law came in so that transgression would increase? Paul, you're, you're, you got that one wrong, buddy. The law came in to curb sinning, Paul, not to increase sinning. Well, uh, either the Spirit of God and the Apostle Paul inspired him, you know, incorrectly, or maybe we've been sold a bill of goods thinking that the law, living by law, actually curbs sinning. So he says the law has come in, it came in, it was given to Moses and to the people of Israel so that transgression, so that sinning would increase. But where sin increased, look at this, grace abounded all the more. This is probably my favorite verse in all, in all of Scripture, Romans 5.20. Is the law bad? No. It's perfect. It's good. So how can something that's perfect, the Mosaic law, how can it increase sinning? Well, it's not on the screen. You can write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verse 56 says that the power of sin is the law. In other words, if you want to fuel up sin in our bodies, then you put sin under law, and it produces sinning of all kinds. So the law is not bad, but if you put any one of us who has sin in the flesh underneath the law, sin is strengthened. Let me give you an illustration. Who would say that water, H2O, water is bad? Anybody say water is bad? I know Bobby Boucher wouldn't say that. Water is not bad. Somebody will get that at lunchtime. My mama said. Water is not bad. None of us would say water is bad. But what happens when you put a weed seed underneath water and you water a weed seed? What is the strength of that seed? What causes that weed seed to germinate? Something good called water. So is water therefore bad? Let's rid the world of water? No, it's not fault of the water. It's because of what it, that seed is, that weed seed that is being strengthened. It's germinating by this thing that's good, water. But the water fuels that bad weed seed. It's the same idea. The law is not sin. But if you put sin under the law, then sin will increase. We've used this illustration a bunch. I don't have time for this, but we'll take it. Silly little illustration. Don't think of a pink elephant, right? We've used this before. Do not think of a pink elephant with pink ears, with a long pink trunk, you know, a little curly pink tail, you know, those big pink legs. Don't think of it. What are we probably thinking of right now? That pink elephant. Nobody's thinking of an orange zebra. Thinking of a pink elephant. 
Because the command itself excites the very thought of the pink elephant. So what happens, according to Paul, when transgression increases? What happens when sin abounds? Something superabounds, and it's called grace. So wherever sin is present and wherever sin is increasing, grace, the idea, is increasing all the more. The word abound all the more, it's this word hyperparousio. It literally means abounds with no limit. Hyper, you know that hyperactive kid? Anybody got one of those? Sometimes at, at night when it's time to go to bed, we've got three of them. But the hyperactive kid, that's one whose activity is above the normal activity. Hyper. We understand that word. So this word of grace, he's saying grace is hyper. It's above any amount of sinning that could ever increase. And so the law came in to increase sin so that the reality of the hyperness, the hyperabounding reality of grace could be seen for what it is. And so if you were to ask me, Walt, do you believe in hyper grace? I say absolutely yes. Because it is the only thing that can change our lives. If grace is not hyper, then what is it? Limited? And so we thank God for his hyper grace that abounds greater than sin. So that, so the law came in so that transgression would increase, so that when there's increase of sin, there's an increase even further of grace, so that, here's a purpose behind this. Why would God do it this way? So that as sin reigned in death under the law, so sin reigns with the law in death, even so grace itself, himself, Jesus, I would say, would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what increases, what germinates sin? Paul is saying the law increases and germinates sin. So what increases and germinates righteous living, righteousness? Grace reigns through this righteousness. So let me ask you, before we go any further, because we're gonna take a look at some verses in chapter six. In your own life, which do you want to increase more? Which do you want to germinate? Think of that weed seed. What do you want to come forth from you? Do you want sin to come forth from you? Or do you want righteousness, holiness, the per perfected life of Christ to ooze and come forth and to manifest itself through you? A or B, sin or Christ? Which do you, at the end of the day, with a sober mind, want to come forth from you? Well, I know what you want to come forth from you because I know what God has placed in each one of us. It's his desires. And so here's the question. We all want righteous living to come forth from us. None of us want sin to come forth from us. So how does that happen? How do we get to a point where righteousness begins to come forth through us when at one point in time, sin used to come forth through us? Here's what Paul is simply saying. If you want righteousness to come forth through you, then stop living under the law. Stop living under a list of expectations of things you must do in order to really be okay, in order to really be good, in order to really be right with God himself. You throw that away and you live in this ever-abounding, hyper-abounding grace of God and what he's done for you and to you, and you just watch the very spirit of God, as Paul says elsewhere, put to death the deeds of the body so that the very fruit of Christ's life begins to live and, uh, and, and, and grow and manifest through you. 
So as more sinning happens, more grace appears. And we have the opportunity to live under grace and not lost so that sin won't appear and live through us. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. So what shall we say then? So what's our conclusion? What, what does this mean? Are we to increase in sin so that grace may increase? Because that's what you just said, Paul. Wherever sin abounds, grace superabounds. So should we continue in sin so that grace would manifest more and more? Do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is anticipating religious objection. He's re- He's anticipating it. Why would Paul anticipate religious objection to what he's saying here about grace being greater than law? Because Paul has encountered religious objection at every single turn. Listen, we here at Life Journey Church, we get ridiculed. We get rejected by religious Christian Gentiles 2,000 years after this stuff was originally written. We get ridiculed by people, other believers, who, have, uh, who were never even given the law of Moses, because remember, Gentiles were never even given the law. We're rejected, we're re- ridiculed when we start proclaiming this very message that Paul proclaimed. So if we, 2,000 years later, get rejected and, and ridiculed for believing that grace is enough, that Jesus is enough, then just imagine how much Paul was ridiculed for telling law-saturated Jews that the very law that they have sought to live up to for their entire life is actually the very thing that's fueling their sin. I mean, how did you feel? Be honest. How did you feel when you first were told that all of your efforts to keep the Ten Commandments and any other of the other 613 laws of Moses, how did you feel when you were told that your efforts to keep the law was actually the cause of what was creating sin to increase within you? Probably, like me, you rejected that. You, you ridiculed that. You're like, how can that be? And maybe even if we're honest, some of you might still push away from that and say, no, no, we've got to have law-based living. We have to know a list of what to do and what not to do. How else shall we live if we don't have a list of things to do and not to do? In fact, I've shared this before, but a dear, dear, dear friend of ours who used to be a part of our church family, her last day with us, she, she looked me in the face and she, gently, she wasn't rude, but she just said, Walt, I don't know how to live the Christian life apart from the Ten Commandments. And I said, sweetheart, you have something that Paul says The Ten Commandments, 2 Corinthians 3, has no glory. No glory. Because of why? The far surpassing glory of Christ himself. And if we, 2 Corinthians 3, would look in a mirror through the veil of this world, we would see that that very same glory is alive within us. And it's by his life we live, not by stone tablets. It's by him, depending upon him, living by him, not by things written Now, was what was written bad? No. But what was written, the law, excites sin. It is only the grace of God that leads us in righteousness. And so Paul is anticipating this religious objection. So he says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin? I know that's the conclusion you're going to come to. But notice what he's not saying. Paul is not saying, are we to continue sinning so that the grace of God might increase? 
He doesn't say that. He actually gets to that in verse 15, which we'll cover next week. But he says, are we to continue in sin, a place? In other words, are we to continue living joined, united, tied to sin in the flesh so that grace would continuously abound? Is that God's plan for us to continue in our union with sin? And you might know his answer to his own question, may it never be. In other words, not on your wildest imagination is that God's plan for you to continue united to sin. And here, look at this. He says, how shall we who died to sin still live in sin? So no, it's not God's plan. It's not God's plan for us to stay united to sin so that grace would increase. God's plan is for us to die to sin so that we are freed from it. How is it possible for we who have died to sin to continue living in sin? Now again, he's not talking simply about sinning. He's talking about not a verb, but he's talking about a thing called sin, the power of sin that we have been joined to since we were first born of our mother in her womb. So how can we who have died to sin continue to live in sin? Let's try to break that down to where we understand it a little bit better. When you die physically, if you're a resident of Crozet or Albemarle or Virginia, let's just say Virginia, because all of us are residents of Virginia. When you die physically, will you, upon your death, physical death, will you still be a resident of Virginia? No. Why? Because you what? You died. Your very physical death will be the end of your union, if you will, your attachment, your connection with Virginia. That's all that Paul is saying. Paul is saying that we have actually died to this thing of sin, but we don't realize it. We think we're still alive to it. We think we're still joined to it. We think we're still uh, uh, united to this thing of sin, the power of sin in the flesh, to which many of us, if you're newer to life journey especially, we might be scratching our head and pondering, wait a second, wait a second, I'm dead to sin? I didn't know that. I never heard that. It's not new, but it's new to you, maybe. It's nothing new, but it might be new. You never heard this. And you know what? Paul not only anticipated religious objection, but he also anticipated religious ignorance. Watch this. In verse 3, he says, or do you not know? So, so he's saying, how can you continue in sin if you've died to sin? And then I think Paul is like, well, wait a second. Maybe they haven't heard this. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard this? Has nobody told you that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Haven't you heard this? See, Paul's never been at this point to Rome. He eventually gets to Rome, but he hasn't been there yet. And so he doesn't know what they've heard and what they haven't heard. In the book of Acts, he comes across some people who had heard about John's baptism, but hadn't heard about Jesus. And so he continues the story. He shares the rest with them, and they were born again in that moment. And so he's like, I don't know what you've heard, because if you haven't heard that you've died to sin, we need to take a time out from the rest of what I'm writing. We need to talk about this. Because if you don't realize that you have died to sin, then you're never, you're never going to understand what it means means to live a new life in Christ. So haven't you heard? Don't you know? Baptized simply means placed into. He's not here talking about water and a ceremony. He's talking about the fact that we have been placed into Christ Jesus, and in being placed into Christ Jesus, we've been placed into his very death. Verse 4, therefore, we have been buried with him, through baptism, again, being placed into his very death. So Paul's beginning to paint this picture. He's going to get specific in a minute. That the very same death Jesus died, do you not realize you also have died? To which we look at our fingers moving and we're saying, wait a second, I've died? Well, he certainly isn't talking about the flesh. What is he talking about? Let's continue on. This is intriguing. This is new. It's not new. It's been in here for 2,000 years, but it's, it's new. I'm not familiar with this. We've been buried into his death, through baptism, into his death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just like what Craig said earlier, we can't walk in the newness of life with Christ until the old life is dead. We say phrases in Christianity, and they're good phrases, like, Jesus, come into my life. You know, is Jesus, has Jesus come into your life? That's, that's a great phrase. I'm, I'm all for it. But here's the deal. In order for Jesus to come into your life and to be a part of your life, your old life has to end. It has to terminate. It has to be dead through what Paul's saying, through his death. Verse 5 says, for if... We have become united with him in likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first, life because of his resurrection or death, participation in his death? Which comes first, life or death? Anybody? death. But see, that's backwards to us, isn't it? We think that life comes first and death comes second because that's our experience. We, we, we have babies that are being born and, and they live and grow old and then we die. Life comes first, not death, but not in the kingdom of heaven. What happens first in the kingdom of heaven is death, the death of Christ, of course, but our participation in that death so that our life, our origin with Adam completely ends is eradicated so that we can now have a new life. God can't join himself to our old life, so he has to give us a new life. We're so accustomed to life preceding death, but not the gospel. The gospel doesn't work that way. Jesus even gives us an example of this in the gospel where he talks about a little seed. He talks about in order for a seed to bring forth life, it must what? Die and be placed in the ground. Burial, a picture. So, so whether you're seeding grass or whether in the springtime you start doing some, I don't know, whatever you do in the springtime, you know, I don't do that stuff, but... Seeds in the ground, 
corn, I don't know, whatever, realize that that thing, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, hey, what's a good example of this? Let me come up with a quick example. Oh, a seed. Here's a good example of what I'm talking about. The seed must die in order to give life, in order for life to come forth. No, no, no. The seed itself was created by him. We read that in Colossians 1 a little bit ago. It was created by him, for him, and through him to reveal to us something. So as the farmer is sowing out his seed, the very seed is a shadow of this whole thing of the gospel, that the seed itself must die and be placed into the ground in order for life to come forth. And so here's what Paul is trying to hammer into our heads and into the heads of these Romans in first century is that if you have life with Christ, that life you have with Christ was preceded with a death that you had with Christ. And the very death he had, you had. And there's crazy implications that he's about to hit home for us as we start to get to the end of this passage here. Knowing this, knowing this, that our old self, what's our old self? You turn that off, Dave. That our old self, think of um, who you truly are at the core when you were first born into this world. Your union with sin, your union with the flesh as the picture of Jacob in the Old Testament, deceiver, the inner man, wicked, vile. The old self was crucified with him. Knowing this, that our old self was actually crucified. You see, when you became a believer, if you've become a believer yet, when you become a believer, became a believer, it wasn't just that Jesus came to give you some new life. That did happen, but only after he took your old self and crucified your old self with him. See, you're not some sort of, like we talked about last week, snow-covered dung, trying your best to get a little bit better, trying your best to become a better person. No, you died with Christ. You were crucified with him. Did you crucify yourself? No. Who can crucify their own self? You get one hand up, and what do you do with the other hand? Crucifixion is something done to you. And he crucified us with him. Why? Why did he do that? In order that, see that purpose? In order that our body of sin might be done away with. He crucified, he took us through his very death so that our union, our marriage, if you will, to sin in the flesh would end so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. See those first two words in that verse? Knowing this. I submit to you that this is one of the things that we as believers just don't know. We really don't know. I mean, I'm not going to like ask for a raise of hands, you know, but, but before you, because we talk about this a lot, obviously, at Life Journey, because this is what is the gospel. But before you started coming, before you started being a part of our fellowship here, really, honestly, had you heard this before? Knowing this, that my old self died? I thought Christianity was just, you know, you just kind of pray a prayer and you just kind of go on with your life and try to get your goods, to outweigh your badge and get a little bit closer, do a little bit better. I thought that was Christianity. 
No, that's called religion. And there's a ton of those. Try them all out if you want, but they're not going to get you anywhere. Paul says, knowing this, and I'm just saying maybe Christianity in America just doesn't know this. I didn't know it until I was like 32 years old. I came here to start this church not knowing this. Confession time. But our old self has been taken away, cut away, crucified with Christ in order that there's a purpose. The body of sin that was joined to our true heart, who we truly were, is now severed done away with. Our lives were slaves to to sin. Think about all of us in this room. When we were first born in this world, because of our collective ancestor, Adam, we were all created like Adam. Genesis chapter 5 says this, we were created in Adam's image. We were slaves to sin. Now, I don't know if this is helpful. I like, I'm a kind of visual, you know, learner. So maybe you picture all of us in this room, maybe in a big circle, and we have these, you know, these chains on our arms, on our legs that are binding us. And in the center is this thing, not an action, but an actual thing called sin, this power called sin, the mystery of iniquity. It is in the middle of the room, all of us in a big circle around it, and envision us all chained directly Because of Adam, all chained directly to sin, enslaved to sin. So wherever sin takes us, that's where we go because we're joined to it. We're enslaved to it. Wherever sin goes, we go. And we might not really want to go where it goes. That's what we'll get into that next in a couple of weeks in Romans 7. But we can't find rescue from it. And then the law comes in to only excite that thing we're chained to to make it even worse leading us to realize there is no hope. And then, of course, we know there is in Christ, but we don't know that yet. And so what is the only thing that can gain our freedom from our slavery to this thing of sin? We're enslaved to it. We're joined to it. What's the only thing that can end, sever that union? The only thing that could end a slave's relationship to the owner is for the slave in this picture to die. And in that slave's death, that union that that slave has to sin is then severed. Remember, if you died, are you still a citizen of Virginia, a resident of Virginia? No, your relationship to Virginia ends upon your physical death. And so this union that we had to sin before we were born again was only able to be severed through death. I can't even begin to imagine the horrors of of human slavery, but an owner owns that slave as long as that slave lives. But as soon as that slave dies, that slave is now free from the ownership to that master. Now, he's dead, so it doesn't really help him out much, but that ownership ends. That, that, that slave master has to take that slave off of his books. He no longer owns that slave because that slave has died, severing that union. Now think back to me, with me, this picture of all of us in this room at one time literally chained, enslaved to this thing called sin. Now what happens when we die? Does sin still own you? No. When you die, you die to sin, and it ends 
its ownership of you. Your chain of slavery is broken when you die and you are free. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in verse seven. For he who has died is freed from sin. Do you see this picture? Do you see this imagery? The only way to get out of this enslavement to sin is through death. Does he say that we're freed from sinning? Is he suggesting that we never stumble, that we never do stupid things? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about sin as a thing. He's not talking about sinning. He said we're free from sin's ownership towards us. So how do we die to sin? Are we talking physical death? What is he talking about here? It's a great question. If we were to die on our own, whether it be physical or spiritual, it wasn't, wouldn't matter, there would simply be death, nothing else. But praise be to God, God's very plan was for one, capital O, one to come who has a life greater than death, who would come and taste our very death for us so that when we trust in him and in his death, his death actually becomes our death and we died with them so that we now are raised in a new life as a new creation simply by trusting him and that ends our very union, our slave, uh, slavehood to sin itself. And so God's desire was to send his own son to hang on a cross and to ver become himself enslaved to our sin as Jesus himself became sin on the cross. And so that in his death and when we trust in him, we, as Paul has been saying, we actually participate in that same death to end our union, our slaveship to sin itself. Verse eight, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. For death no longer is master over him. So is Jesus ever going to die again because of sin? Well, he's not going to ever die ever again. No, he's never going to die again because death was re required to release our union with slave, with, in slavery to sin, and Jesus' death accomplished that severing of our union with, with, with sin. So Jesus will never die again because there will never be any more enslavement to sin. Um, think of it this way. Uh, you, you owe the government, you know, $50,000 in taxes. You die. How much do you owe the government now? Right? You don't owe the government anything because you died. What was the government do? Come to your grave and like, you know, squeeze it out of you? I mean, there's nothing they could do. You, you're dead. Are you going to die again? <laughs> you see this? He's saying once this has happened, you are freed. You are no longer in any sort of union relationship. Look at verse 10. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. 
but the life he lives, he now lives to God. Let's go back to that horrific illustration of human slavery. How many times does that slave die in order for that mastery over him to end? Just one death. In the same way, Jesus became our sin, and he took, he joined himself to our sin, took our sin and our death in this once and for all action. This way, when we trust in him for salvation, we're placed in his death, in his burial, so that we can now be placed in his resurrection. For we too have died to sin once and for all. And that's what Paul says in verse 11. He says, even so, or just as we just saw Christ dying to sin, severing this union with sin once and for all, even so, here's the practical application. Consider yourselves dead to sin. How many of us honestly consider ourselves dead to sin? Probably not many. We struggle with that. This word consider, I love it. It's where we get the word uh, kind of, it's where we get the word logic from. And so it's kind of like, so reason this thing out. It's what Paul is saying. Calculate it. In other words, like Craig, do the math, okay? Do the math, Jesus became your sin, and he died ending the slavery to sin. And if you trust him, you've been placed into that very same death so that you now have a new life with him. Do the math. What is your union right now to sin? What is your relationship with sin? What is its ownership over you right now as a believer? It has no mastery. It has no ownership. You died to it. So here's the relationship to the power of sin in the life of a believer. Dead. You have died to sin. Somebody tell me what your absolute favorite food is. Anybody? Anybody? Confession time. What? Spaghetti. All right. Spaghetti with meatballs. Spaghetti. So Will loves spaghetti. All right. We'll love spaghetti so much that we'll must have spaghetti breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean breakfast, spaghetti, lunch, and dinner. Seven days a week. And on Tuesdays, he has it for a snack between breakfast and lunch. On Thursday, he has it also as a snack between lunch and dinner. And on Fridays, I mean it's Friday, you know, TGIF, he has it as a midnight snack before he goes to sleep. Spaghetti. It's the only thing he eats. Nothing else. He's addicted to the stuff. He loves it. He can't stand a minute without it. If he doesn't have that spaghetti sauce, you know, mustache, goatee thing going on, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He loves it. He can't stand not being with it. Now, let's say Will lives to ripe old age of 80, 90, 100 years old. You guys just celebrated a 100-year-old birthday, right, with a neighbor, a relative down in Florida. Will lives 100 years old, and he has lived off of spaghetti every single day. How old are you now? 12. Every day of his whole life to 100 years old, spaghetti, lunch, breakfast, dinner, with all these snacks in between. At Will's funeral, all of his friends, they know how much Will loves spaghetti, so you know what they do at the celebration of his life? They come to the celebration of his life with big old bowls of Spaghetti. Because they love spaghetti, because they love, because Will loves spaghetti. And in fact, they put all sorts of spaghetti dishes, you know, baked spaghetti, non-baked spaghetti, I don't know, all this spaghetti into the, the very box that Will is when he's 100 years old and he's lived an awesome life. When Will is laying there, listen to me, 
When Will is laying there in that box, 100 years old, lived an awesome life, has 17,000 great-grandkids, when, when that day comes, how much attraction, listen, how much desire, how much want does Will's body have to that spaghetti? I see a zero being held up. How much want does he have for that spaghetti? None. Why? I'm yelling, I'm sorry. Because he died to spaghetti. Do you see that? I know that's silly and simple, but here's the deal. What have you died to because of Jesus? You've died to sin. And so whatever, here, here we go in towards the journey marker, whatever Jesus' very desire for sin is, because remember, he died to it first and foremost, Whatever his desire for sin is, so also is your desire now in this world. For as he is, so are you now in this world. Because you died to it. Continue listening or reading with me. But there is a desire. If it not be for spaghetti, let's get back to the spiritual. There is a desire that you know all too well within you for sin. Right? I mean, can I get a witness? I mean, there's a desire within us to, be, to return, you know, evil with evil. There's a desire for sexual sin, for, you know, uh, all sorts of sin. With it. We, we know that desire because it's in our brains. We, we feel these desires. So we know there's desires. Well, how can you say I'm, I'm dead that I don't have these desires? Well, it's because the Scripture says you don't have these desires. Look at this, verse six, chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, because you've died, do the math Add it up, consider yourself dead to sin as well. Therefore, since you are dead to it, since you have no desire for it, since you have ended through Christ your slavery to it, let it, sin, no longer reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, its desires. So I'm not here to debate whether or not there is within you a desire for sin. Because I know there is. There is within me. Here's what the Scripture is saying, that the desire for sin within you is coming from this thing, this parasite called sin. What does sin desire, John? It desires sin. I mean, it makes good sense. But what do you desire? Do you desire sin? If you're born of the Spirit, you do not desire sin. Your true heart desires it as much as Jesus desires it. For as he is, so are you now in this world. So here's what Christian maturity really is at the end of the day. Christian maturity is a growing renewal of the mind, a growing reckon, uh, reckoning, a growing uh, considering that this thing that I know all too well, these impulses, these things that are filling my head with with desire is not coming from my new heart. It's not coming from who I really am. It's coming from a power called sin that wants me to obey its lusts, its desires, but they're no longer my desires. Sin by very its own nature wants to sin, but by our very new nature, being partakers of the divine nature, we desire not to sin. We have choices to make, we have choices of what to follow, of who to follow, but our choices of what to do in life 
must be predicated by this reality that we actually have died to sin. We desire sin as much as Jesus himself desires sin. For as he died to sin, so did we. So therefore, verse 13, don't go on presenting your members of your body to sin, right? Sin is alive in you. It didn't die. You died to it. It's like, it's like being freed from that slavery, but then going back to the slave owner and say, hey, what do you want me to do today? You're freed from it. So let us not go on presenting our bodies to sin, to the flesh, as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead let us present ourselves, our bodies, to God, the one who, is, who, who has now uh, joined himself to us as those who are actually alive from the dead because we are living for your members and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We've run out of time, but but I've said this before, so I won't go along with it, but you put a guitar in my hands, you know, you get a couple little chords, but you put that same instrument in Hart's hands or in Craig's hands or anyone other, anybody else's hands probably, and you're going to get a whole lot better action out of that guitar. Same instrument, but different player. What Paul is saying is let's don't be duped into thinking that sin's desires are your desires. Let us grow wise. Let's realize that it has desires for sins, but those are not your desires. And so let's stop presenting our bodies like an instrument for sin to play, and let's wise up and realize that we are actually right and holy and pure with God himself, and let God play our very lives. For sin, verse 14, last verse, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You want sin to be master over you, then you put yourself under law. You want sin to be mastered over you? I know I'm going to get crazy emails and people might not come back to the church, but I'm just trying to say this because it's the truth. You want sin to be master? I'm going to close my eyes so I don't even have to look at you. If you want sin to be master over you, then you hang the Ten Commandments up in your house and you try your best to live up to them. For the law empowers sin of every kind. We'll see that clearly in about two weeks when we go to Romans 7, where Paul says, I didn't even know what coveting was until I lived under the law of thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet is one of the what? Ten Commandments. So if you want to have sin reign through you, live by the commandments, live by the law. But if you want righteousness and life and joy and peace to flow from you because of the life of Christ in you, then you get as far away from that as you can and you live underneath the hyper abounding grace of God towards you, seeing that he has ended your union to sin and that you are now a new creation. Our journey marker this morning is simply this. However dead Jesus is to sin, so am I. However dead Jesus is to sin, so am I. That might not feel like your experience. This might sound new to you, but it's not new. This message is what turned the early church, the Mediterranean world upside down. This very message is what boldly stood disciples in front of firing squads, if you will, because they saw what Jesus has done. Wrapping up, sin desires to sin. It's who it is by nature. You desire Jesus. It's who you are by nature.
So any and all sinful thoughts, desires, and mindset that flow through these brains of ours, they have an origin, and the origin is not you. It is sin itself that lives in these bodies. These thoughts, these desires, they do not come from your, who you truly are now. You died to that. You died to sin. And you, like the, the will in the box at age 100, have no appetite for it. But sin has a great appetite for it, but not you. Do you not know that you have died to sin? We don't know this, but we need to. Knowing this is what gives us great confidence in the day of judgment. How in the world can we stand before God in the day of judgment with confidence if we think we're still joined to sin itself? still enslaved to sin itself, still desiring even sin itself. Most of us struggle, I say all of us, I would even say, struggle with the same sin, the action, the same thing, sinning over and over and over because we think this sin is coming from us, a part of us. We think this sin is just who we are, but that's not the truth. The truth is that we've died to sin. We're freed from sin. And as we rid our thinking and our mindset of law-based religion, we will stumble into a grace-based righteousness where Jesus himself reveals to us what our new identity and desires really are, for they are his identity and his desires. So if you this morning are stuck in a habitual sin habit, a habitual sin cycle, here's step one. Step one is for you to begin to believe that you have died to that sin, to sin, and you have no desire. The true who you really are, whether you can understand these words coming out of my mouth or not, you truly have no desire for it whatsoever. Sin desires it, but not you. There is not a civil war going on in you, meaning there's not the good you fighting the bad you. No. There is sin in the flesh waging war against you in the spirit. You are not divided. You don't have two natures. You are a particular of the divine nature. And so are we willing to walk by the spirit by doing the math and realizing something simple yet profound that we have in fact died to sin and we are now alive together with Christ? So what do we see this morning? Number one, law increases sinning, grace increases righteousness. Which one do you want to live by? Number two, whether we know it or not. See, this isn't contingent on our understanding of it. It's reality nonetheless. Whether we know it or not, we have died to sin. But we, are, we still live under the confusion thinking sin's desires are our desires. But as that starts to work itself out, as that starts to get clearer and clearer, that those very things that I continue to think I want to do are truly sin's desires, we start to gain freedom and victory over that, saying, why would I present my body to that instrument, as an instrument to that desire? Because that's not truly who I even am. It comes down to identity. What do we see, number three? Sin its desire is, well, to sin. But your desire is Jesus. I don't know if this connects or hits home, but I'm just here to tell you that until we come to a rest in this amazing 
reality, I'm telling you, we're going to continue to fight identity issues. We're going to continue to struggle with sin issues. We're going to continue to think that we're going to continue to be blinded to the truth of who we really are. And here's who we really are. As He is, so are we now in this world. It might not be our experience, but what are we going to go by? Our feelings or the truth? As our custom is, and this should hopefully generate a lot of thoughts and questions and and whatabouts, we're going to take a few minutes to uh, answer some questions, to have a comment if anybody has a question about something or maybe something made you think of something or, hey, but what about this or this scenario or that? We have a few minutes. We don't have a whole lot of time. I apologize. There's a lot I wanted to get through. But if you have a question or a thought um, of what this could possibly mean or maybe a word of encouragement, maybe even a testimony, I encourage you to, uh, to maybe just raise your hand and I'll throw the mic your way. Not really. I'll bring it to you very nicely and gently. And we can uh, have a little time of discussion before we break out. Let everybody go at once. Yeah. Well, let me go uh, to, the, to the back and we'll work this way. I'm sorry. I just couldn't get away from making another remark about how thankful I am uh, that Walt sheds light on the scripture in a way that I've not ever perceived or known. Um, is anybody in here at all frustrated by all of the things that you might see or read in the news? Uh, everything from this guy running for Senate down in Alabama who's been accused 40 years later of sexual misconduct with three or four women or something that have come forward to Harvey Weinstein, a great director, producer, I guess, in Hollywood. I read this list last night that Steven Seagal has been accused. Um, Dustin Hoffman, all of these people that I've kind of enjoyed some of their shows and movies and whatever. And if I'm not careful, I can get so frustrated and angry at the idea that any of these people have committed these atrocities, these sinful things. And then I'm reminded of what Jesus said amongst a group of of Pharisees and other folks uh, when he was accused of talking to the woman at the well or something. And he said, well, let those without sin throw the first stone. Well, all of a sudden, a bunch of people disappeared. You know, is that a comfort? It is to me because now I realize that all of my sinning and all of my evil thoughts and things that I even do on a daily basis, I'm dead to. God is not seeing those things. Thank God. And I would just suggest that in in the case of all of these awful sinners that we hear about every day. My gosh, every day someone else is popping up, you know. Jesus, this guy did this. This woman did this. this guy, I mean, it is horrible. And I think to the secular world, to the non-believing world, they look at it, well, golly, we just can't have those people around. Ugh, they're just disgusting people. I ask those people, look into your lives. Are you without sin? 
cast those stones. Let me see you cast those stones. (laughs) We live in a sinful world. We live in a sinful body. But thank God, Walt reminds us (laughs) that we are now dead to sin. We are alive in Christ, and what joy and comfort that provides. Did I say that somewhat correctly? Anything? Corrections? No, no, sounds great. Yeah, amen. I mean, it's just such a joy and comfort. He he who is forgiven much forgives much, right? He who loves much, right? Yeah, Yeah. and we've just got to love all these these awful people that are around us. I mean, it's just terrible. But uh, gosh, thank God someone I think loves me. I don't know. I, I love this team. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's probably all you're going to get out of this room, though. <laughs> the only guy in the world. But thanks again yeah. for awesome. revealing thanks. something that is so often forgotten. I think Craig had his hand up. Thanks, Steve. Well, I didn't have anything too profound. I just kept hearing these scriptures in my head that this is going to be foolishness to the world. Um, and that God's strength is made known through man's weakness. Like, the only way that we conquer sin is by dying. Like, that doesn't make sense. But that's God's wisdom being foolishness to the world. And our, our conquering of sin has nothing to do with us. It has to do with what's been done to us, like you said. Like, you don't crucify yourself. That's, something that, that's a passive act. That's something done unto you. Did I say that right? Yeah, look at that, the math teacher. Um, I don't know. It just, going back to David's, you know, thing about the consistency, all these little scriptures that were echoing in my head about, you know, it's just so counter what we've been told. You need to be stronger and work harder and all that to conquer this. But in truth, it's a submission to someone else's power, um, someone else's strength that's going to serve as your victory. It just, it's all over the place. You can find it all over the gospel, but we struggle with this one because this one feels like something that we need to do. Yeah. Um, but it's not. It just reminded me of, you said, David, you know, Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against God. And he's talking about G- Genesis through, you know, uh, Deuteronomy. He's talking about the law. He's trying to put the law into him so that he won't sin against God. Well, what do we have? We have something so much better. We have the living word himself alive in us and a union with him with death to sin. I mean, we have so, so much more than David. You know, the things he longed for, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me, uh, he cries out. Well, dadgummit, we can say, wow, we have that. We have the very things that David cried for and longed for. It's amazing, but we don't, again, do you not know? Do you not know that you have died? You know, so much we don't know, but yet it's been there for thousands of years. Um, may there be a revelation. Any other thoughts? But yeah, Jonas? I was reminded of um, Walt was going through about this, this truth, this fact, and although this is part of the true riches, not the earthly things, but the true riches, and it's from God. I mean, this is unusual in this message, and uh, and I was thinking of an example. Um, 
I was reminded of this as Waldo's teaching, and it was this young man that we worked with. I used to cut timber for a living. It was this young logger, and he was a single guy, probably close to 30 or something like that. Worked with his dad. And uh, anyway, his dad became ill and passed. And he left, he had to his son. And his accountant came to him and said, uh, you know, Daddy has about 400 acres of land or so. He said, yeah, I know. He said, also, your dad has some CDs or bonds or something. And the son said, I don't think so. He said, I would have known about it if, if Daddy would have had that. I, I, he would have told me. And he said, no. Um, but when this son discovered, in fact, these are CDs, and they had value. Believe me, he cashed in on it. He received it, and I, and I had to think of that. This is a gospel in its fullness, and there's an enemy about us that is trying to take this away. I, I guess I just got this picture of speak it out, own it, receive it, receive the truth. Good. That's good. So, like, a thought, maybe this will be our last thought before we have to take off, but so we all have those, you know, habitual, repeated you know, sins that want to sin through us, critical spirit, you know, whatever it is. Whatever it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. Whatever it is for you, think this thought when it comes. Because it's going to come, right? It might not be there right now, but it's going to come. But when it comes, think this very thought. Think or remember, wait a second, I have died to sin. Therefore, I am no longer joined to sin. And the very desires I have, which we'll really see next week, the very desires I have are the very desires of Jesus. This thought, this temptation, this sin that, is giving, that seeks to manifest in me is not coming from me. It is sin's desires, not my desires. Now, you may do that sin. You, you may. But I am encouraging us to fight fire with fire. Don't just try your best to just not sin. Re realize that you, in fact, have died to it, and its desire is to crush you, to destroy you, but your desire is Jesus Christ himself. So even in the midst of that critical spirit, whatever, fill in the blank, even in the midst of it, what if you had a, a remembrance, a revelation? I, in my heart, truly don't even want this. I think that would be a huge, huge step towards victory. Let's stand and close uh, with a word of prayer. If you want to stick around and help put some uh, tables away and chairs away, help with the uh, custodial staff, that'd be awesome. Oh, remember... Uh, sign up at the table for um, food for next week. Uh, Mary Rose will be out there if you have any questions of her. Um, and if anybody wants to help with that, I'm sure she will take help. Uh, that'll be next Sunday following the, the morning meeting. Father, we just thank you for what is uh, new to us, perhaps. We've not stumbled upon these truths, this reality. But Father, we thank you that this is not new. This has been 
a reality for thousands of years, and perhaps we've been blinded to it, but it is not new. We're not coming up with anything new. We're just discovering the hidden joy of a life with Christ that knows no end. So, Father, may we be taken by your agape love to a place where we realize that when all fades to black, we will stand before you confident, confident, because of the reality that as you are, so are we. As you desire sin, to the same desire we desire sin. Wow. Let us see that, especially in the heat of the battle, when sin is waging war against the Spirit. May we see the true battle lines that we have died to it and allow your Spirit to put to death the deeds, the actions, the thoughts of the old man. For the old man has died, and we are a new creation. May this resonate within us this week, we pray. For as you are, so are we now in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, guys. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.